the Dr. Frank Avila Show. I'm your host, Dr. Carolyn Frank Avila, board certified family physician and diplomate with the American Board of Obesity Medicine. I've been helping patients lose weight to treat and prevent medical problems for the last 10 years, and I'm taking what I've learned from them to you. In this podcast, you will learn the science behind why you struggle with your weight and what to do about it, tips for common challenges, work to fight bias about what a healthy weight really is, and improve your relationship with food and your body. Please remember that while I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. This podcast is meant to be informational in nature only, not medical advice. Please seek out care from your physician for your specific needs. Okay, let's get started. All right. Well, welcome back to another week of the podcast. I have a guest with us today. I have Dr. Rentia. She is a physician. She's a board certified internal medicine physician and diplomate of the American Board of Obesity Medicine. She has 10 years of experience in primary care and as a weight loss specialist. She owns and operates the Rentia Metabolic Clinic, a telehealth clinic in Indiana and Illinois that provides comprehensive weight management. She takes a dual medical and behavioral evidence-based approach to helping her patients. She also hosts the podcast, The Obesity Guide with Mathia Rentia, MD. So check that out if you are looking for even more information about health and weight. Well, welcome to the show. Tell us about yourself. How did you get involved in this field? How did you get involved in in weight loss and helping people lose weight? Yeah, thank you for having me on. I absolutely love your podcast. I'm so happy to be here. So I found myself with a weight struggle for my entire life. So this is something that's always kind of been part of who I am, that's something I struggled with. And when I went into primary care after residency, I was seeing patients. And what I would see commonly is that we would sit there adjusting diabetic medications and blood pressure medicines. But when we would really get down to it, we were never really addressing any of the roots of the problem. So perhaps it was insulin resistance, weight management, different things like that. And to be honest, I never had the time to go over a lot of it. I didn't have the correct training as far as medications. I didn't have the time to address different things. And so I started to look into what are ways I can help myself and my patients more, right? It always starts usually with solving your own problem. And so I started to look down different avenues. Number one, getting board certified with obesity medicine, but then also uh, coaching was a really big part for me was kind of how can I change the way in which I'm thinking about things And so I started to kind of look at all of this and I realized that I could help patients in a different way, but it would require taking a different approach than we normally do in medicine. Yeah, that's such a great summary. And it's interesting. I think there's a lot of people in this field who have that lived experience where they, as a physician, were like, look, I know all the supposed, you know, science of eating less and exercising more that I was taught in school. And like, why am I individually still struggling with this? Right. I made it through med school. I'm a really successful person. And somehow, you know, I keep being told I'm doing things wrong when it comes to my weight. And I'm actually surprised how many of my colleagues in this field, you know, that's why they got into it because they were like, there has to be better answers to this. So, so thank you for sharing that. Cause I think it, I think it's probably more powerful in, in many ways to know that someone's doctor has lived experience with, with knowing that, that this is a really complicated thing. What surprised you in that process? Like what, what were your biggest take-homes, you know, for yourself when you, when you went through that process? You know, I think when I started out, this was probably, I don't know, six, seven years ago, I thought there was going to be an answer. There's going to be the one thing I'm going to find. Cause I think I had like diet culture programming. Right. And what I came to, what I came to understand is that I can learn all these different tools. There can be plus or minus 
some medicine or whatever intervention, whether it's for me or for a patient, but that there's really not going to be like one thing that's going to solve it. It's usually really complex. And that's honestly a lot of the obesity medicine training that helped me is to realize even as a physician, I didn't understand how complicated and how complicated it was. And to know, okay, I'm going to have to keep working at this. Certain things are going to work. They're not. I'm going to have to keep adjusting. I didn't understand that. I thought it was just like, we're going to arrive and it's going to be the answer. I was still stuck in that. And I think your point earlier that one of the struggles we have in a traditional family medicine or internal medicine clinic is we just don't have time to do that that deep dive into all the things we need to do to help someone with their weight. I don't know what you do in your practice. My initial consult with the patient is usually 60 minutes. I spend an hour and that's just like gathering information and, and giving ideas. I'm not even really doing anything yet. And I always warn people, I'm like, we're probably not going to do anything today. I'm just getting information. But it, it really takes me that full hour to like understand understand the picture and like what treatment plan is going to make the most sense. Right. I do the same thing. It's an hour. And and like you said, we're, we're just like skimming the surface. So I tell people we're just getting started. It's usually going to be kind of months and months until we really maybe get down to what are some of the things that are really pivotal for you. Yeah. Well, glad to know I'm not just slow at it, that that it is, it is uh, you know, a long, a long process to really, you know, get to the root of it for a lot of people. One of the things I know you like to talk about and that comes up a lot of times when we do these intakes with our patients is emotional eating. And I have a whole podcast episode on that for anyone who wants to go back and hasn't checked that out. Episode 10, uh, we talk about identifying that and, and some tips on what people can do. But I would love to hear your take, especially with with some of the coaching experience that you have and training in that about emotional eating and you know how you help identify that, what you do about it whatever you want to tell us about emotional eating. Right. I I love talking about this topic because I feel like this is the thing that's holding a lot of people back. So I always like to keep it simple. So first of all, when we hear the term emotional eating, it sounds really loaded, but I define it as eating for any reason other than physical hunger. So your body is physically not giving you a signal to eat, then it's emotional eating. And in society, we have just been kind of conditioned and programmed that a lot of this is normalized. Like you might go to a birthday party and you're not hungry, but there's birthday cake. Everyone's going to have a piece. Or maybe this is just the way I was thinking, but I see this very commonly. Maybe at night I have a snack. So it's times when you're not hungry and you're eating. So it doesn't have to be this really deep, like, oh, grief is running this or things like that. It can literally be positive emotions, negative emotions. Anything can run emotional eating. So habits, emotions, all of it. So The easiest way that I tell my patients to identify this is to think, would a food that I have very low desire for, like a dry piece of chicken, a boiled egg, a cheese stick, an apple, would that solve this hunger right now? And if your answer is no, it's emotional hunger. So I like to keep it very simple. So a lot of patients, when they hear that, they'll come back the next month and they'll say, oh yeah, I asked myself that. And I realized an apple wouldn't work. (laughs) So it's a very simple tool. But it lets you know if it's not physical hunger and it's emotional hunger, meaning that you're eating for other reasons, then we get to start to play around with how else could I solve for that? Because food can only solve for physical hunger. And getting a new relationship with food where you're not always sort of complicating it in the scenario where there's other things going on, but food keeps on being the solve because we do feel better when we eat, right? Like we get a dopamine Absolutely. hit, <laughs> the taste of it, right? Like I always tell people like it's doing something for you. Otherwise you wouldn't keep doing it. But the first key is I think trying to peel back emotional eating, picking some times when you're going to commit to 
if I'm not hungry, I'm not going to eat and see what comes up for you. So that's one of the first tools that I like. And the main thing here with emotional eating, if you hear one thing, it's that you've got to start to create a pause. There has to be a pattern interrupt. There has to be a moment where you can choose something different. But if you can't slow things down, you can't question that it even is an urge, which is I'm not hungry, but I want to eat. If you cannot create that pause, you can't have different outcomes with this. You can't change it long-term. So many gems there. And I love that question of, you know, like, would something boring, would the boiled egg, would the baby carrots, would something that's like not your favorite food, but that you're willing to eat for fuel, would that solve this? And if not, like, maybe this isn't actual hunger, right? Maybe this is something else. And I think what you said, a lot of times when we, the the term emotional eating can be a little loaded, right? You picture someone who's just had a bad breakup and they're eating the pint of ice cream, right? Like that's the classic in a movie or a TV show. And like that, that is emotional eating, but it doesn't have to be that dramatic, right? It can just be that you came home from work for the day and you're like a little stressed and frazzled and there's chips on the counter and it's just that much easier to eat them because you're a little emotional. It could be happy, right? You're snuggling with your your significant other on the couch and you're very content and happy. And when you're happy, you like to eat chocolate or chips or whatever. And so again, it's all that sort of eating that's not about fuel. And it's okay to do it a little bit, right? Like I think it's okay to emotionally eat a little bit. You know, it's okay to celebrate. It's okay to sometimes eat cake because you're celebrating and it's fun. And it's okay to sometimes eat the ice cream because you're like, you know what? I don't feel great. And you know what? I'm gonna have a little bit of ice cream and it's better than, you know, some of the other things we could do too, right? Because we have to do something about these emotions. Exactly. And you know, I always say the goal is never zero. The minute we do that, you get right into that binge restrict cycle where you don't have all the things and then you go wild on them when you have them. And part of what we want to do here is long-term move to really like peace and freedom with food. And that means that there's not so many rules that I don't feel like if I have a bite, everything, it's not, well, screw it. Now I go eat all the things. It's really perfection is not needed here. But most people's brains, that's something you're going to have to work on, that it's not all or nothing. There's a lot of work actually required. Yes, yes. That black and white mindset. I think I am trying to think of what podcast episode that is, but about the black and white thinking, right? That all or nothing. And that can be a trap for us in so many behaviors that we try to do, right? So it's not that I never eat because I'm stressed or I never eat because I'm bored. I bored eat a lot or I, I know I... I will eat so that I don't have to do work. Like I like sit down on my computer to, you know, work on something I don't want to do. And I'm like, should have some crackers, right? Like I'm like, I'm not hungry. I'm just trying to delay, you know, that task I don't want to do. So like lots of different reasons. And when we can recognize that pattern, then we can do something, right? Because if you don't even realize you're doing it or why you're doing it, then it's really hard to make that change. Awesome. Well, that's, that's a great description of it. And I think that that thinking of like, anytime you're eating, that's not for hunger and and figuring out why, right? Like, why is that going on? Do you uh, sometimes see people who maybe they struggle to figure out that pause or they're taking that advice, they're hearing you, but they're finding that they really are not able to apply it. And, and if so, what do you think of for those people? Yeah, that is more the rule than the exception. So most people, I kind of see working on a new relationship with food, there's almost like four phases to it. I'm going to roughly break this down, but I'm, I'm going to say this so it gives clarity to people. So stage one is I've I've overeaten and done all the things and then I'm catching it. That's where most people are starting. So you, you're always overeating. Every time when you're coming home from work, you're stressed, you have the whole pizza. That's fine. That's stage one. 
Stage two is you're actually in the middle of the overeat and you're telling yourself things like, I shouldn't be doing this. I don't know why I'm doing it, but you still do it, right? Stage three is before you're like, I shouldn't do this, but you still go do it. And notice that's three out of four. So having this moment of awareness where you actually go take different action is actually phase four where you catch it. You have a different tool. You change the outcome. You do something different. That's last. And what's most painful I see for people is that they need to go through all these phases And so everyone wants to jump to perfection Mm. at number four, where I know it and I don't do it, right? Like this line, you know, do they, they like patients come to you, right? And they're like, you told me blah, blah, blah. And then I didn't go do it. And now they think it's a failure, right? And it's like, no one is going to hear something once and go execute perfectly. That's just not how this is going to go down. So the quicker we can get on board, like there's going to be phases to this. I'm going to have to learn different things to achieve this. So you having a pause and taking a different action is going to take time for you to even notice that it's happening. It's going to happen at different phases, right? Instead of it being after, during, versus before, but then also to take a different action, even when you notice it, all of this is going to take like, can I try something new this time to make it happen differently? It's going to take experimenting. I love how you broke that down and that, you know, again, trying to get to the end without going through the different phases is probably not going to work, right? So I sometimes talk about CrossFit. I'm a CrossFit coach. I like CrossFit. I'm not actually that good at CrossFit. So I get coached a lot. And when you're trying to like learn a new move, like you're right, you don't just do it, right? You progress through it. So, you know, if you're trying to work on pull-ups, well, you need to get that strength first, right? So you might just work on hanging from the bar for a while. You might do negatives where you jump up and then you lower yourself down, right? We're not just jumping to the end where you're like, you either can do a pull-up or you don't. You might use bands. You're going to like progress along the way to being able to do this really challenging movement. And you also may never, you know, you may never get all the way there, right? And, but if you're partway there, right? Like if you went into the gym and you're like, I haven't done a pull-up since I was in sixth grade and now you're doing it with bands, that's a lot better than not doing it all, right? So if you get to that point where you can recognize that you're, you know, eating when you're emotional or stressed or not hungry and you can stop, that's better than, you know, completely being unaware of it, right? Totally. I I like to sometimes say like, if people are doing, sometimes we do habit tracking, right? Just to like gain awareness with data. And if you think about like little circles each day, I would encourage people not to be either check or X, whether it happened or not. And to do, give yourself a partial circle, right? Like if you think about the day in quadrants, you know, did the first part of the day go how I wanted it to go? And you start to realize it's not all good or bad, but like allow yourself visually to see that. And you know, the, the other thing you bring up, I love the CrossFit stuff because I listen to your podcast and I'm inspired by that myself. But I think it's like Dan Sullivan's four C's. It's it's more of like a business principle, but everyone wants confidence at the end. But really it's like courage, commitment, capability. Those are things that need to develop first before you have the confidence at the end to, to know exactly what you're doing and how to navigate different scenarios. Yeah, so just like anything in life, right? There's this, there's this progression and like trying... Trying to get to perfect is probably never going to happen for anything we're doing in life, right? And at the same time, like there's good things happening along the way, right? So I love it. One thing, you know, I think both you and I like to talk about are the medications that can help with this. And so do you have any success stories or do you see that medications can sometimes help with with a component of this as well? Totally. I definitely am a fan of the medications because I think that it's it's a very effective tool where we know that it leads to results. 
what I find is that a lot of the a lot of the food chatter, the thoughts that patients are struggling with are very much so helped by these medications. But what I see is that sometimes, even though they lose weight and the weight stays off, those type of thoughts come back, especially like with the GLP-1 medications. And I usually see it about like over the six month mark when people are on them, when they've kind of achieved their goal weight. And so usually my thoughts are, if we're not starting to do this work either before or during to rethink about our relationship with food, then it's going to, we're just pushing the can down the road as far as when we're going to have to get a handle on this. And so that's why, yes, they're helpful. I find that people can gain access to feeling empowered enough to even start on this. But then, so it's like, you're either going to do it before you start the meds, when you're on the meds, when you've been on them a long time. But at some point, usually this type of work is going to need to be done. Otherwise it continues to be a struggle, even when the weight's down. Yeah, absolutely. Like they go together, right? So when we talk about what we formally do as as obesity physicians, you know, we always talk about like our pillars. So nutrition, of course, is key. Exercise is key. The medications are tools, but the behavior change is important too. And they all go together, right? You're going to have the best success if you're using things from all of those categories. And, you know, and that's why people struggle to use just nutrition or just exercise. And probably we see people who are going to struggle using just medication. They're not going to have as good of results or as long lasting results if they're not doing this. But sometimes the meds can help people do it. Like they, I see people who are finally able to have that pause because of the medication. They're like, oh, now I get what you were talking about, right? They're like, I, I kept trying, I kept trying. And like, I didn't, I just, my brain didn't do it. And now sometimes with the right medicine, they're like, I can actually do those things I had been trying to do. I mean, a lot of the time I find that if we don't use medications and we're not doing things differently like that, we're not treating any insulin resistance or anything else that's going on. And then a lot of those things, It's like, we can't outthink physiology that's not working for us. And so I'm not here to say that it's just, you know, thought work. It's, it's really, like you said, all of it, because if your physiology is all screwed up, it's really hard to sit there and balance things out. It, it, most people are not able to do all of it. Yeah. I think that's a great point. If there's an underlying reason why you're struggling, whether that is that you truly don't feel full, right? Maybe you're starting to recognize there's some genetic differences and some people just don't feel full the same way other people do, or whether there's that insulin resistance, right? Where you eat a carbohydrate and it sends your body different signals than it does to someone who doesn't have insulin resistance, then it's a lot harder to apply these tools. And so sometimes they're like, if you are like, yes, I've heard all of this before, I know how to do it and it's, it's not working. And then maybe like adding a new tool to their toolbox, like a medication, or sometimes even surgery, right? Might might be the the tool that someone needs to finally be able to to do all of these things if it doesn't seem to be working or not adding up the way they're expecting. One of the things I don't think we've really talked about, but you and I had kind of talked about before is this concept of self-sabotage. And I hear this from my patients frequently. They may describe what happened last time they felt like they weren't able to keep weight off or they haven't seen me in a couple of months and they're like, yeah, it's just, you know, it's self-sabotage. Like, what does that mean to you? How do, how do people recognize it? What is this self-sabotage that people are describing? So there's lots of aspects to self-sabotage, but the way I describe it the most, I like to think in analogies. I want you to imagine like you're walking or jogging along and you've been doing great for five, 10, 15 miles. And then suddenly 
you fall over and you don't get up for a few months, right? And so it's this thing where people are doing these great habits, they're doing these great things. And then suddenly they'll use this this language like, I'm off the wagon, but then they don't come back to the things, right? So that's that's how I define self-sabotage. You were doing a lot of things that were great. And instead of deciding like when that moment happens, because none of us are going to be perfect, right? Instead of sitting there and saying, okay, well, then doing things in that way didn't work, but here's how I'm going to tweak it. Here's how I'm going to keep going. That moment does not occur. And we just abandon everything we've done and we go back to the old us. And so that is like the moment that I define as self-sabotage. Usually what I see with self-sabotage, it's a scale of magnitude problem. People have been doing too many things too quickly. They're not actually checking in if it works for them. A lot of the time it's like these external recommendations, but they've never checked like, does it work with my family? Like sometimes, let's say you join a doctor's clinic and they're really about giving meal replacements, right? But what if you have a family of six at home and you cook dinner every night? That's never going to work, right? But if you never, right? Like if you never said that to the doctor, you might be able to do it a few weeks, but months down the road, you're going to say to heck with this. These shakes are expensive. I can't stick to it. And then you're going to say, well, I couldn't stick to it. And, you know, I'm giving a very like extreme example, but basically it's, it's usually not fitting in your life. You're not checking in often and you're asking yourself to do too much too quick. So I am a really big fan of, uh, this is from the book Atomic Habits by James Clear, 1% upgrade. So these are so small so reasonable what you're going to bring in. If you have the thought, I don't even know if this is going to work. Like, I don't know if me actually doing this will move the needle. You're probably onto the right thing. Um, I want to give an example. I saw a patient the other day and this person told me had no movement practice. And part of what we were building out was getting a little bit more active. They had bought a walking pad, which is really common right now, right? For people at work or uh, things like that. And this person wanted to do three days a week, 20 minutes. I said, that's amazing. Let's start there. Great. But then this person said, but I'm not going to count that as the actual walk. I'm going to also do other walking. And I sat there and I said, wait, you're already going to set yourself up for something where you're doing so many new things. Like that would be amazing. If you come to me in a month and multiple times a week, you've been doing that movement. That's you starting out. That's you doing something where you're not going to self-sabotage, but to add even more sabotage would have come down the road. So I think it's really about looking at when I'm doing a lot of new things, which is usually what's happening when we're working on metabolic health, weight loss, whatever it is, it's the things that I'm doing. Is it reasonable enough? And can I stick to this? Like you keep talking about the, the sustainability of it, right? Yeah. yeah. One of my weight care rules is like, whatever you're doing, you have to be able to keep doing, right? You have to think or think it's reasonable that you could keep doing it. Right. And I want to add to that because I love that episode that you did. And so people in the beginning, it's very hard for them to imagine doing things for life, right? Like, I don't know, like, I I feel like everyone I deal with, they have a very hard time thinking about the future. We don't need to think that far in the future. It's like this next month. And I 10 out of 10 that I like doing this, that I want to do this, that I'm, that I'm committed to this. And if not abort, it's time for something different, but people aren't willing to have that moment of being like, I'm not going to do that. How can I do this in a different way that works? They're not willing to have that conversation with themselves. So some of it, it sounds like is almost like setting yourself up for failure sometimes where you're like, I am overextending. I'm doing too much. It's not realistic. It's not, you know, because sometimes when you hear someone who's done the meal replacement program and it worked really well for them and you see how well it has worked, which they do work great. 
you know, you get excited and you're like, I could be that person. I could do that. But is that realistic for your life and where you're at and your preferences? And I think, yeah, setting yourself up for failure is, it sounds like part of this, this self-sabotage practice. I feel like it's exactly, this is exactly what you said. And in this day and age where there's so much social media and opportunities to see what I eat in a day, and you're able to see into people's lives in a way that you never did before. And like you said, there needs to be that moment where you look at, but does this work in my life? Is this actually something that I could do? Because often there will be a mismatch, but there's a certain, there's something that you're attracted to there. So let's take what that is and Mm -hmm. then bring it into your life in a way that works. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's huge. Figuring out what, what was appealing to you about that. Right. And, and how do we work to get you that same result? Well, thank you so much. And that was a ton of helpful information. And thank you for sharing some of your patient stories with how you see this play out in the, the real world in your clinic. Any final thoughts, any closing thoughts, anything you didn't get to say that you want to make sure you share with the listeners? I'm just so glad that we got to have this talk. And I want to encourage anyone that's maybe starting to go down this road of working on emotional eating or whatever it is to meet yourself where you're at and you will get where you want to go. But just smaller steps are usually the way that is number one, more fun and where you're going to keep going long-term. Well, where can people find you if they want to hear more from you or connect with you if they're in Indiana or Illinois where you see people? Yeah, thank you. So the best way to find me is to go to my website. It's renteaclinic.com and that's R-E-N-T-E-A clinic.com. And if you go on there, there's actually, um, if you can either, if you want to work with me, you can click that or there's a podcast link and that's my podcast, The Obesity Guide with Matea Rentia MD. And I have all the episodes on there. So that's the best way to kind of hear more from me or if you want to get any more information. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And everyone out there, take care. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Frankavilla Show, where we learn about all things related to weight and health. If you love this podcast, make sure to leave those five-star reviews and share this podcast with a friend or loved one. If you have a topic about weight and health you want me to tackle, head over to the website, thedrfrankavillashow.com to submit your question. And make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss next week's episode. Take care.